and uh, I've been in ministry here in Houston for seven years, and uh, with each year, I've asked myself, is this the year? Is this the year where I'm going to have the talk? Is this the year where I'm going to talk about the hard stuff? And I feel like the time has come, and the next three weeks, I'm going to be talking about um, some of the very sensitive subject we would like, actually, for our children uh, in varying degrees. Now, mind you, Next Sunday, I'm going to talk specifically about truth-telling, and so that's going to be something that our, even our youngest children can understand. So truth-telling and learning to be honest and tell the truth, that's something we're going to talk about next Sunday. I'm not going to get into the, into the gritty stuff um, next Sunday, so it, it's going to be kid-safe. But the following two Sundays, possibly even the third Sunday, um, it's going to get into the, some of the gritty stuff. We're going to get into some of the hard stuff, and... That is when we'd like for our middle schoolers and our high schoolers to be present for some of this conversation, about, especially about um, the perils of growing up in this time and just everything that's made available to us through the World Wide Web. It's a crazy world we live in. Um, and so please use your discretion on you know, your children and being um, present Talk with them about what you hear, and that's really going to be one of the applications. And um, I hope to offer some resources, um, but most importantly, I'd like for all of you to hear the talk. I'd like for all of you to be present for the next three weeks. If you miss, then catch up online. So if you miss it, make sure to catch up online. If there's one message that I think is vital for everybody for our entire congregation. It's the next three messages. So I really want to encourage you, if you cannot be here, if you're going to miss, um, do catch up and listen to, this, to the talks online. So uh, that's the next two, possibly even three weeks as we talk about the, the, the formation practices of confession, confession, accountability. Today we're going to talk about forgiveness. And last Sunday, we started a conversation about how we can get to this place where we can actually forgive the wrongs that are done to us. And I talked about um, four steps to forgiveness, and those four steps, which I'll just give you right now, so you can even fill in the blanks in your notes. If you look in your notes, you see one, two, three, and four. The four steps, quite simply, are number one, we have to name it, and we have to be able to say, call a spade a spade, we have to be able to say there's something wrong. Number two is to regulate it, regulate our reaction, our response. And so I talked a lot about anger last Sunday, about the experience of something is done wrong to me and I'm experiencing it and I, I can either on the one end, and you can see this pendulum, I can get really resentful. And I can say, man, that was wrong. I'm angry, I'm angry, but you're not doing anything about it, let alone setting boundaries. On the other end of the pendulum, if you let go of that, it swings to the opposite extreme of rage, where I, you, you, know, you go postal. Um, and the, uh, you know, Paul mentioned the Manchester incident. When I heard about it on the news and people were talking about the Manchester bomber, of course, what did you expect? He was so quiet. I never expected him to do something like this. Isn't that always the case? You have somebody that is tremendously repressed, 
and then they pop all of a sudden and swing to this opposite extreme of rage. They go postal. They become dangerous. Why? Because there is no mediation. There is no moderation or modulation. Everything is in extremes. Either I'm really resentful. What's wrong, Wayne? What's wrong? I'm fine. Or I'm on the other extreme where I'm like, I'm upset about this. I'm upset about this. I'm upset about this. I'm upset about this. And those extremes and finding a more moderated place. You know what those, these first two steps of forgiveness are really about? It's about boundary setting. It's about setting healthy boundaries, something that not a single one of us here innately know how to do. I'm not making a criticism of you. I think more that's an indictment on the human race. On the human race, we don't know how to express ourselves and set healthy boundaries. It seems to be lost in our, uh, it seems to have not been included in the original kit. Boundary setting is something that it takes a lot of maturity, a lot of learning, a lot of life practice, swinging back and forth between these extremes of, on the one hand, I'm so upset, but I'm afraid to talk about it. That's the thing about resentment. That's the thing about repression. At the heart of repression and resentment is fear. I don't know how to talk. I don't know how to confront. I'm afraid of people, and therefore I will keep it to myself because I'm afraid. But the thing is, once we find our voice and we come to this other side and we start expressing, we have this almost like a verbal diarrhea. Have you ever heard that expression? Where we're expressing and expressing and we're trying to set boundaries and we're setting boundaries around every little thing. Learning to set healthy boundaries is this swinging back and forth gradually becoming more and more mature. As I said, if you look at that pendulum, that, that diagram, the point is not being dead center. You know, like, I'm in dead center, you know, I'm, I'm perfectly, that the point is not dead center because if we're dead center, we are dead. Life is about movement. It's about growth. And so at any given season of your life, you're going to be on one side or the other. You're going to be on the side where you're like, it's not a big deal. I don't have to talk about it. Or you'll be on the other side where you're saying, it is a big deal. I have to respond to this. The point of this diagram, more so than having a center keel, is to learn to sway less violently back and forth between these, between these, this the philosophical word is this dialectic. Swinging back and forth and not so extremely, like on the one hand, I'm so resentful, I'm not telling the world. And on the other hand, I'm doing something crazy because I'm so angry. So the point is, less violence swinging back and forth. This, friends, is what boundary setting and growing up is all about. Healthy boundary setting. Um, if I can even just share just a peek into my own life. You know, learning to set healthy emotional boundaries especially with family, especially with parents and in-laws. It's challenging. Even as I look at my own children, they're my son, it's my daughter. Of course, it's easy to disrespect my children. It's very easy to disrespect your children because they're your kids. But your children become adults. And when they become adults, I have to learn to respect them as, as adults. Or one day, Zoe and Austin will come to me and say, Dad, we're setting a boundary with you. We're setting an emotional boundary with you. 
And me, knowing myself, I'm going to want to walk all over that boundary and say, why do I have to respect this boundary? Because I'm your dad. And that's when they just say, no, we're setting a boundary. And then I can rage. And from a, a, a psychological, therapeutic background, it's recognized that once an individual sets a boundary, self-defines, the people around affected will react. They will rage. They will get upset. And one of two things can happen. One, things will settle down and they will accept your new boundaries and be forced to respect you. Or, two, they will leave the system or the company or the family or whatnot and continue to act out somewhere else. Boundary setting is basically saying this is healthy and this is the way it's going to have to be. We must learn to do that. If we do not know how to set boundaries in a healthy way and say, respect me, and if you do not respect my boundaries, this is not going to work out. The offending party must learn to respect you. Nowhere in the Bible, friends, does it say, love your mother and father. Now, take me to task on that. You can challenge me, tell me if I'm wrong. But as I understand, it says, honor your mother and father. I believe that's the fifth commandment. Again, correct me if I'm wrong. It says, honor your mother and father, but here's the thing. A mother and a father must earn their honor. They cannot expect just to be honored like that. Respect must be earned. And a parental figure or in-laws must learn to respect you as adults and therefore, they will receive the honor, the biblical honor that is due them. It's important to set this foundation for boundary setting before I get into the third step. Because if I jump to the third step now and all you hear is this third step of forgiveness, without understanding all of this background stuff of boundary setting, you will be very, very sick you will be a mess. Because the third step of forgiveness, I'm sorry to tell you this, is absorb it. Absorb. We start with name it. Second is to regulate it. Regulating has a lot to do with boundary setting. And the third step is absorb. Now you're shaking your head and you're saying, that doesn't sound right. That sounds like repression. You know, when I first heard this teaching, I said the same thing. Absorb it? That doesn't make sense. That doesn't sound right. That doesn't sound healthy. But the more I reflected on it, the more this idea of absorption made sense. The more it made sense. I'm going to tell you a story. And this story was what helped me to understand the idea of absorption. The story <clears throat> is about my dog. And if you have that picture, you can pull it up if not. Uh, many of you know that my sweet little dog passed away. She died, uh, and we put her down several weeks ago. And uh, she was my dog for 13 years. 13 years, I lived with this little thing running around in the house. And the thing is, um, I thought after she died, it would get easier. With, as time passes on, I miss her more and more. So here's the thing about my little dog. When I first got Fleur, that's her name, uh, Jack Russell Terrier, uh, I noticed that she was different from other dogs that I had petted or owned. 
she had a wiry coat. Jack Russell Terriers have this wiry coat. Um, it feels akin to the, to the goat, to the, to the fur of a goat. And I remember that feeling. It's not oily. And as I caressed my dog's back, um, very dry, wiry hair. That's just the nature of Jack Russell Terriers. And I raised that for an important reason. It'll come back, the whole goat reference, because she felt like a goat when I first pet her. So the story goes like this. There was a season of my life when work was really, really hard. Uh, this was pre-woven. This was at another pastorate. And there were a lot of difficult challenges. I was aware of a lot of criticisms of my leadership. And a lot of things were said that hurt me deeply. Um, and I understood that I was not a perfect leader. I had made my fair share of mistakes. But no less, the things that I heard really deeply wounded me. It wounded my wife and kids as well. And every Sunday after church, I'd walk home, kind of like, you know, that cartoon caricature of kind of the dejected businessman with the briefcase in hand, the necktie, you know, kind of, you know, top, top button opened and just kind of shoulder slumped. And I'd walk through my garage door, just feeling terrible uh, during this season. And as I'd walk through the door, the first thing that would greet me, even before my wife or my children, the first thing that would greet me was this little white head. This little white head, this goat animal, this dog, would stick her head through the door and be happy to see me. And it was awesome. It was so wonderful because I'd pick her up. And mind you, it's almost like, you know, when you sweat, you sweat toxins, right? Well, I didn't want to touch anybody. I didn't want to even touch my own children because I felt like there was just a lot of toxic emotional stuff. But I was okay with touching my dog because that's what dogs are for. They're supposed to carry the weight of the world on their shoulders. That's why they're awesome. And so I would pick up my dog, and she would lick my face, and I'd hug her, and it was, it was just really therapeutic, so therapeutic. Here's the thing. During that season, my dog began to symptomize. She began to physically symptomize with anal blisters. Now, if that sounds bad, it is bad. The silver lining around that is dogs get it pretty frequently, so it's not as bad for dogs. But she began to symptomize in these eruptions, these anal blisters. And we tried to treat it. We tried, like, like putting all kinds of things down there. And, and uh, the doctor eventually said the only recourse is probably surgery, surgery. And so poor Fleur, she's erupting in all these anal blisters, and we're like, oh, we don't have the money for surgery. We don't want to put her, subject her to surgery. Well, around that time, something happened. Around that time, we started Woven. And a lot of the toxicity pretty much overnight just fell away. I was beginning to work on myself as a leader. A lot of the things really began to resolve. The church situation, a lot of things got so much better overnight. Here's the thing. You can ask my wife and children as witnesses, but I will tell you, Fleur's anal blisters resolved just like that at that, at that time. Once we started Woven, Fleur's anal blisters disappeared, completely disappeared. This told me something. It told me, it talked about this phenomenon of transference. It taught me about how, how toxicity or complaints or pain 
it gets transferred psychologically, even physically. And when I thought about my dog, I began to remember, isn't there something about a goat in the Bible and how Israel would transfer their sins onto the goat? Yes, there is. In Leviticus chapter 16, there's a story of the scapegoat. And the way the scapegoat worked in Israel is they would confess all of their sins throughout the year, but there were always something that they would forget. There's something that we forgot. There's something that we didn't even realize we had sinned or disappointed God. All of those residue, leftover things, what we're going to do is take them and place them on the head of this poor little scapegoat, this goat. And so all the toxicity, the sins, and all of the horrible things that people do and experience, they placed it on the head of the goat, and the goat would set free, they would set it free in the wilderness, and everybody would be like, ah, what a relief. Well, did anybody think about the goat? We don't know what happened to the goat. All we know is the goat ran off into the wilderness and disappeared. But there's a story in the New Testament about animals. And the the New Testament story is Matthew chapter 8, where Jesus comes, walks by a graveyard, and there's two demon-possessed men filled with demons living in a graveyard. Think about how much evil and darkness lives within them. And Jesus, he says to the demons, disappear, expelliarmus, or poof. No, what he does, what does he do to the demons? He directs them into a herd of pigs. And we know what happened to the pigs. We don't know what happened to the scapegoat, but the pigs went insane. And upon becoming insane, they ran over the edge of a cliff, and they all died. As I reflected on this animal thread, as I reflected on my own dog, as I reflected on this experience of transference, I began to develop a theology. And, you know, honestly, friends, if I, you know, if I, if I, You know, being a pastor, I have to do theology on my feet. And I'm going to share that theology with you. That theology is how sin works. When we talk about Jesus dying on the cross, he took away our sins. Does that mean that he said, you have sins? Poof, expelliarmus, they just disappear. Does he just make our sins eradicate, disintegrate, just evaporate? No. The biblical understanding of sin is not one of disintegration. It is one of redirection. Redirection. We do that all the time. We do that all the time. It's quite human. You wake up on the wrong side of the bed and you're grumpy. And on the way out, you kick the dog. And then you're driving to work. And all these people are driving so slow and you lean on the horn. And then when you get into the office, you tell the receptionist, give her a piece of your mind or give him a piece of your mind. And then you yell on the phone at all the vendors. And on the way home, you're coming home and you lean on the horn a little bit more. And then you come home and it's your, your wife and your, ki- and your kids, you give them a piece of your mind. And here's what happened. Your bad day, what started out being your bad day became Houston's bad day. It's a miracle how the human race is able to function at all. With all this transference, sin doesn't just disappear, we redirect it. We kick it off at the next person. We kick the dog, proverbially. We take it out on our spouses, our bosses, our employees. We take it out on other people. Redirection is what we're talking about. What Jesus did when he took our sins away was not necessarily say, by dying on the cross, I'm going to make the sins disappear 
But in an act of non-defensiveness, non-defensiveness, my son does martial arts, he has to protect his chest so that he doesn't lose points. Well, Jesus didn't protect himself. By spreading his arms wide open, he said, you hate her guts, give it to me. You want to harm them, give it to me. Stab me instead. You wish that you could yell and curse at these people, curse me. You wish that you could harm them and get back at them? Harm me. The cross was the ultimate act of absorption. It was the final act of absorption where all the junk that we pass around sent to him billions upon billions. His death took it. And you know what he said? Let it end with me. I'll absorb it. You ever see the Green Mile? Where, I think his name was Coffee, the big prisoner. And he would literally take the sins, he would take the, he would take the sicknesses of people. He would eat it, he, would absor- he was the sin eater. Of course, he would manifest. He would, he, would, he would spit out these bees, he would have this kind of experience of, it was not a comfortable experience. You see, friends, the thing about absorbing it is Christ sets an example for all of us, but it's also difficult. It requires a tremendous amount of maturity to absorb the sins of others. It's not natural for us, but sometimes... What option do you have? Do you see what I'm saying? Try this with your spouse. But you did that. Well, I'm setting a boundary. Well, I'm setting a boundary too. Well, I really need to speak my mind. See how many times it'll go back and forth. See in the world what happens when you really, in the end, want to give a piece of your mind. You've set your boundaries. You've done it in a healthy way. It comes to a point where you realize you've done everything that you can and that the only thing that's left, the only thing that's left is absorption. You've named it. You've set your boundaries. And in the end, you're saying, let it end with me. It's done. I'll take it. I'll absorb it. What happens when you absorb it? Two things. Number one, you become a leader. You become the leader of that process. Imagine an argument going back and forth. But you did this, but you're like that, but this is why you do that. You always say this, you never do that. No comeback. Nothing more to say. It ends right there. No comeback. And then the other person, the other party, they look at you and what they see is maturity. And you become the emotional leader of that process. And the second thing that happens when you decide to let it end with you and you absorb it, as difficult as it is, is you also will suffer, just as Christ did. You become a leader, but it's also difficult. Leading is hard. You become the leader of the emotional process, but in the end, you will also know what it's like to have to go home and sit in the bathtub for a little bit. You'll know what it means to have to talk and process the pain. 
because it's difficult. You will symptomize. But you know, there's a third thing. There's a third secret. Actually, this is the last step. And that is win. You win. You will win. You win. We started out by naming it. And then secondly, regulating it, which is essentially boundary setting. But when you've set all the boundaries that you can, the third thing and the only thing that's left is either you permanently cut off that relationship or you absorb it. You absorb it. But then there's the last thing. When you absorb it, number four, you win. You win. The person that is able to absorb, your shoulders broaden. You become recognized as a leader of the process. You become recognized as one who is emotionally capable of taking more. You become as Christ, one who is able to bear the sins of others. I want to read to you a quote that's in your notes that talks about people that were able to bear the sins of others and they did not waver in setting their boundaries and saying and naming it as wrong. They named it as wrong, but in the end, they were able to win. Listen to this remarkable quote. It's one of the lesser-known quotes by Martin Luther King Jr. It's in a speech that he gave at Western Michigan University in 1963, and it's on the bottom of your notes. It says this, Throw us in jail, and we will still love you. Threaten our children and bomb our homes and our churches. And as difficult as it is, we will still love you. Send your hooded perpetrators of violence into our communities at the midnight hours and drag us out on some wayside road and beat us and leave us half dead and as difficult as that is, we will still love you. This is absorption. But listen to the boundary setting here. But be assured that we will wear you down by our capacity to suffer. Be assured that we will wear you down by our capacity to suffer. These are not people that are fighting back, they're setting their boundaries, but they are not in any way um, kicking back the sin. They say it ends with us, and as the, as, as the result of this is their shoulders are broadening. They're able to take on the sins, not just of the black community, but of the white community as well. And as they become the emotional leaders of the process, what they're saying is we will wear you down by our capacity to absorb by our capacity to suffer. And one day we will win our freedom. But listen to this. This is what it means to win. Because what happens is when you absorb, when you become emotionally mature, you're boundary setting, you're healthy, and you are able to take, you're able to, you're able to absorb, not only do you win yourself, you win the others as well. The other side comes around he continues and says, we will not only win freedom for ourselves, we will so appeal to your heart and your conscience that we will win you in the process. We will wear you down by our capacity, capacity to suffer, and one day we will win our freedom. We will not only win freedom for ourselves, we will so appeal to your heart and your conscience that we will win you in the process. 
We will win you in the process. And our victory will be a double victory. This is a hard teaching. And I conclude with this thought, that forgiveness was never meant to be an easy four-step thing. Because this process that I've just talked about, boundary setting, naming it, and ultimately absorbing, letting it go, and winning, that requires a great deal of counsel, a great deal of work, a great deal of inner, 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 inner work and searching. I invite you to close your eyes. And I'm going to read some quotes about forgiveness. And I hope that these quotes speak to you about taking the high road, taking the higher road. I hope that these quotes speak to you about becoming the bigger person. Through the medium of prayer, we go to our enemy, stand by his side, and plead for him to God. Jesus does not promise that when we bless our enemies and do good to them, that they will not despitefully use and persecute us. They certainly will, but not even that can hurt or overcome us so long as we pray for them. We are doing vicariously for them what they cannot do for themselves. Dietrich Bonhoeffer. These quotes are in your bulletin, by the way. The second quote is from Elizabeth O'Connor. To bless the people who have oppressed our spirits, emotionally deprived us, or in other ways handicapped us, this is the most extraordinary work any of us will ever do. Here's a proverb. Write the wrongs that are done to you in sand, but write the good things that happen to you on a piece of marble. Let go of all emotions such as resentment and retaliation which diminish you and hold on to the emotions such as gratitude and joy which increase you. And in closing, I'm going to read one last prayer. And there are, there are other quotes, and you can find them on the inside of your bulletin. Save them, read them on your own. These are powerful statements on forgiveness. This last prayer. Oh, my Lord, wash me. Wash me of this relationship. Wash me of the pain of it. Wash me of the hurt of it. Wash me of the disappointment of it. Wash me of the resentment of it. Wash me of the attachment to it.
Wash me of the hurtful memories of it that come back in quietness and in prayer. That come back in the silent night hours. I give myself into your hands, Lord. Do for me what I cannot do for myself. Heal me, Lord. Under your healing touch, hour by hour and day by day, I shall be set free. Amen. Amen. This has been a Woven Church podcast. Woven Church is a multi-ethnic missional church that meets in West Houston. We invite you to check us out on Sunday mornings at 10.30 a.m. To find out more, visit us online at www.wovenchurch.org. That's www.wovenchurch.org.